This morning we continue our study in the Minor Prophets and we come to the end of the book of Amos, and Amos chapters 7 and 9, for those of you who have been reading along with us this week. In these chapters, Amos has given a series of pictures that illustrate God's judgment on nominal and superficial religion. Specifically in Israel's case, the kind of religion where God is used as long as he's in alignment with my desires, the, the things that I want. So a good representative passage uh, from Amos 8, um, the message it has it this way, listen to this, all you who walk over the weak, you who treat poor people as less than nothing, who give little and take much, you exploit the poor, using them, and then when they're used up, you discard them. And so it kind of just goes on like that in Amos uh, 7, 8, and 9, until you get to the end of 9, where there's a promise for restoration and hope. And we'll look at that in just a minute. Well, in the passage we read this morning, we have the famous uh, story of God up on a wall with a plumb line and measuring, as it were, his people. Uh, in art and in construction, um, had we been watching them lay bricks over there when they were, uh, I noticed they're building a sign out front, had we been watching them lay the blocks that that sign will be built on, uh, there would have been a plumb line out there uh, to make sure that wall was straight. So in art or in construction, a plumb line is simply the thing that sits there that's unalterable. It's uh, for the builder or the artist an undeviating point of reference that allows them to keep what they're building or creating in alignment. In the story, the wall that God's standing upon is that which God is building. It's what he's bringing into existence. And in this case, he's speaking specifically of his chosen and sent people. So then he hangs this plumb line, this instrument of Precise testing of trueness. Um, and I, I mean that in kind of the construction sense. You know, they say, well, this is really true to plumb. And what's being measured here is, what's really real about your stated beliefs and behaviors? And it's just helping them to raise the question in their hearts, is it in alignment with God's calling and plan for you? And I think it's good to just stop here for a moment and just remind ourselves for ourselves, but I think also for our calling to be salt and light in the world and for our uh, various attempts at evangelism these days that can be so difficult to um, try to share our faith in any meaningful or kind way or way that's accepted at least as kindness and you know not being haters or something. And one of the biggest issues is, is today the average person, especially in the developed or Western world, struggles with, can we even know what plum is? Especially when it comes to moral or spiritual or religious kinds of ideas, is there actually such a thing as plum? And the reason is, as soon as you say a word like plum, well, it means by definition that there is a way that things are, right? Otherwise, what's... There's no good with plumbness. I mean, what plumb is trying to say is there is a way that things are, and now build your wall according to the horizon. And the only way to do that is to have a plumb line. So are you feeling me here? Just to even use a concept like that suggests that there is a way that things are outside of our thinking about it, 
or our feelings about it. There just is a way that things are. Now, you know, as Christians, we tend to focus on what we believe about God. And fair enough, good enough, we should. It's important to know what we believe about God. But when it comes to the kind of things that Amos is getting at here, it's instructive to ask not just what do we know about God, but to ask what does God know? What's implied in him standing on the wall and him hanging the plumb line? What does he know? So if we were just to consider this, what does God know? Just from a few issues that are, have been in the news in the last couple weeks, uh, I just saw this weekend from an Australian news site trumpeting this big headline, virtual porn is now here. I don't know if you've seen this, but there's these like virtual headsets that people wear, virtual reality headsets. And the article went on to describe how pornography is always written on the back of every new technology and that the brave new world of virtual porn is here. Or I saw this week an article in the Huffington Post. Have you heard of a website called Ashley Madison? Ashley Madison is a website for married people who want to meet up and have affairs with other married people. This website boasts that they're the most successful website in the world for finding cheating partners. And the only reason it was in the news is it was hacked this week. And so 37 million wannabe cheaters now have their, ident or their identity known by somebody. They would have never made it in the news. A website for those trying to find a way to cheat. This month, the highbrow British publication, The Economist, uh, took its editorial stand on euthanasia. And by the way, I'm aware that there is a, you know, perhaps an intelligent spiritual debate to be had around euthanasia. But just for my purposes this morning, the article goes on to say that most Western governments no longer try to dictate how consenting adults have sex, but the state still stands in the way of their choices about death. An increasing number of people and this newspaper believe that it's wrong. Patients who are motivated by pain as well as the desire to prove their own sorry, preserve their own dignity, their own autonomy and pleasure in this life should have the right to die with the doctor's help at the time and manner of their own choosing. Or I saw just this, I think this was happening this weekend, a group in Detroit was planning to unveil an eight foot tall bronze statue featuring a goat headed Satan during a gathering that's being billed as the largest public satanic ceremony in history. The invitations went out um, to the unveiling, summoning guests to prepare for, quote, a night of chaos, noise, and debauchery, come dance with the devil, and experience history in the making. Now, you know, we could just go on and on and on. This, this, I can't make this stuff, this stuff up. There's more of it than you can imagine. Okay, so fair enough. What I want to get at this morning is how very little human beings apparently stop to ask, I wonder what God knows about these things. Like, does God actually have knowledge of what is plumb, and therefore what is according to his design, and therefore good for us? It's worth asking, is God smart? I mean, does God possess genuine intelligence that's useful for humanity? 
It's worth asking, is God's plumb line better for humanity than fulfilling one's crooked desires? Which would actually be best? And I've said to you before that, you know, this is a little bit of a generalization because I, I don't have all day here, just 20 minutes or so. But it's, I don't think it's too much to say that the average human being today, again, in the developed world, thinks that what it means to be most fully alive is to notice and then fulfill my desires. That's like the best a human being can accept and hope for. So if you could just go through that list. My desire for um, whatever form of sex, virtually. My desire to be in control of life and death. My desire to cheat secretly when I want to cheat. My desire to explore the spirit world. See, that's what's underneath this. This stuff doesn't come from nothing. We now live in a day where the most important thing is to fulfill our desires. So now catch this. Even that doesn't come out of the blue. That comes out of and is funded by and is helped to happen by the notion then that liberty is what's really important to human beings. Liberty. And yes, of course, it is unspeakably important. But liberty does not arise out of the blue. It arises out of a context in which there is a creator God, the world's one true Lord and God, who is hanging a plumb line. And we experience our liberty both within and with reference to that plumb line. But when that's gone, when we no longer even innately wonder, you know, does God know anything about human sexuality? Is there any knowledge there that God would have that might put any kinds of bounds on human sexuality? And I know that if we went around this room, we would all draw that line in probably slightly different places. But again, that's not my point. My point is, is there a body of knowledge there? Is there something plumb? And more importantly, do we care? Do we even stop to wonder? Is, is there a divine knowledge about this? You know, does God know anything about death and how death functions within human life? Does God know anything about the spirit world, things like demons and Satan? Now, I think we can put a, a, a nice, fine point on this by just wondering together. Picture um, Moses, best you can. Got it? Now, ask yourself, was Moses acting on knowledge when he, quote, chose to be mistreated? Right? So he has all these desires that would lean against being mistreated. Obviously, Right? Total normal desires that would be bent away from being mistreated. But he chooses to be mistreated among the slaves in Egypt rather than, quote, to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And I just want to say in the normal world out there today, to choose against your desires is almost a form of insanity. Who would do that? And if you try to do it, you'll be told, well, it must be your parents, it must be religion, it must be your boss, because nobody left to their self without external constraining powers would choose against their desires. 
So is there, is there a basis, like an intuitive, normal, sort of organic basis for choosing against one's desires? Yeah, and it has to be rooted in the knowledge that there is a God who actually does know something about this. Or is there a wisdom in Paul saying in Galatians, like does this represent knowledge? When Paul said, don't be deceived. God, the one standing on the wall and hanging the plumb line, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, one will also reap. So what's happening here with this whole wall and plumb line and its trueness to God's divine purposes is something like this. That God's love for his work, like his, his divine intention, and God's love for his people, this is the underlying reality of all human experience. Humanity and your personal problems and humanity and the big structural global problems of the earth today are not a, they don't have human solutions. And they don't have human solutions because they're not a human project. They're a divine project. And so the invitation of this story is to see that, yes, it's true that the underlying reality of all of human experience is being guided by God, that God's the master wall builder, and he'll be the determining factor of straightening the human community up. This is what the plumb line was meant to put before our imaginations and to accomplish. It was basically an invitation to repent. For in Amos's you know, context, for the people of Israel, as we read it this morning, trying to create a future for ourselves by reading it in the light of today of Christ. It's an invitation to us to inquire about what's plumb, notice anything that's misaligned, and then simply by the grace and power of God for whom you, your life is his project to adjust. This is the invitation. But the invitation comes at the end and the passage we read in chapter 9 with this great promise that God will one day make everything right again for his people. And essentially what was going on underneath uh, the sort of cultural community stuff in Amos' day is that striving was so bad, it was so out of control, that the people of God were both manipulating each other and abusing the poor all in the search to provide for themselves and to secure oneself, which is to say their desires to be provided for, their desires to be secure, were providing a rationale through which they abused each other and the poor. And so Amos calls them to a way forward by saying, hey, what if the promise is real? Like if you want to glance at your passage, and just let your, let your eyes fall over those promises at the end of chapter 9. And then, you know, look at those last words, because I said so. That's a hunter, that's a hunter paraphrase. Because the Lord says so. And what, what Amos is trying to get his, his people to see, his congregation, you might say, to see, is that what if the promise is real, the promise of God's provision, and what if we let that remembrance bring to us a confident peace that would allow striving to cease, both, you know, kind of in the nation of Israel and between them and the poor? Now, the word or the phrase, the promise, is a big phrase in the Old Testament. It's as big as important as a word like covenant. 
because the promise is that God would always give his redemptive blessings to his people, right? It came first to Abraham, passed down to Isaac and Jacob. It was reaffirmed through David. It's reaffirmed through the whole Old Testament so that Amos is saying something like this, even in the midst of our sin and unbelief, God's promise has not ceased. And then he just unpacks that. At the end of the, the book here, unity will come. There'll be no more injustice from kings and Edom, who's kind of an icon of, uh, of the embodiment of hostility to God, will be overthrown. The soil will no longer be under a curse. It will grow things. It will be the end of disappointment and frustration. That is to say, we'll actually be able to dwell in houses and have vineyards and, and drink wine from our vineyards and that the people will enjoy a settled and peaceful life. It's only that vision that you are okay right where you are in your life as you presently experience it. You are safe and you are cared for And there is someone standing on the wall of human history. And I know all over the planet there are places where it looks crooked, but there are places of great beauty. I just read this week that over the last few years, because of 99% of this, because of Christians, over the last few years, now I hope I'm remembering this number right, 2.6 billion people now have clean water to drink that they didn't have less than a generation ago. That's the work of God's people all over the planet. So the wall looks crooked everywhere, but it's also beautiful in places. But if there's a wall being created by God and him standing on it and him ensuring plumb, then this is meant to allow us to then live a grounded and peaceful life. And so, you know, you fast forward from James to our gospel reading this morning, And what you have then is the gospel of the kingdom showing us that what Jesus is doing is the beginning of the final fulfillment of this, of the promise, right? It went from Abraham to Jesus, to the church and the reconstituted people of God, all who are in Christ, that this is now breaking out. And so what we read in the gospel lesson that casting out demons, this is the beginning of the end of evil and that which disturbs humankind. This business of the unforgivable sin, it just simply means that resisting this movement of God, resisting plumb, that anyone who determinedly and consistently chooses against God and stays out of plumb will someday just have God say to them, okay, okay, I get it. You don't want anything to do with me. You don't want anything to do with my wall. You don't want anything to do with seeing if your life's in plumb with that. Okay. You know, sort of have your way because to be with me, to be in heaven would be a horrible hell to you because you want nothing to do with me. And so there is an unpardonable sin, the sin of determinately, consistently saying no to God and what's plumb. Or this business about his mothers and brothers, I love the way Eugene gets this in the message, obedience is thicker than blood. That's what's essentially being said here. 
Those who see me, they see what I'm building, they see what's plumb, they care about it, they're doing what they can within my goodness and grace and power, you know, all the means of grace, that within all that, they're seeking to align themselves with me. Well, these are my brothers, this is my sister, this is my mother. And essentially, Jesus is commending the whole story. Can you get this? He's commending the whole story from Abraham to the dramatic inbreaking of the kingdom through Jesus. And then as he notices those who are trying to align their lives with that story, he commends them, essentially saying that when it comes to what God's up to on the earth, obedience is thicker than blood. That what I just happened, you put it this way, Jesus could have said something like this. Of course, I was born into a human family. So I happen to have a mother and a stepdad and some siblings, most people would think. And so there I have blood relatives. But that's important, but, you know, in a sense, kind of just a, a convenience of history. What my father's doing from Abraham to Revelation 22.5, a people who will rule and reign with him forever and ever. What my father's doing is drawing a people to plumb to being his people. So then the passage ends with this very emphatic, says the Lord your God. <laughs> like, this is going to happen. This, this is what's real. And so even though his beloved people were twisted out of plumb, God never gave up on them and promised them that blessing would come. So I want to end with this uh, beautiful illustration that I think will help us see God's process in doing this. There's a surgeon, uh, Richard Selzer, who's also an author and uh, has written some stories about his experiences, kind of spiritual experiences as, as a surgeon. And uh, one place he writes, describing a moment after surgery when he's visiting this young married couple to deliver the news of the wife's prognosis. He writes, I stand by the bed where a young woman lays, her face postoperative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny little twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of the mouth, had to be severed to remove the tumor in her cheek. She will be thus from now on. Her young husband is in the room, and he stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me. Who are they, I ask myself? He in this wry mouth that I have made who gaze at and touch each other so generously, so greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? Yes, I say. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. The surgeon says, I was so close that I could see how he twisted his own lips to accommodate hers, to show that their kiss still works. And this is what underlies all of human history, made and marred and mended by a God who knows everything and who deeply loves and has the full capacity to hang what's plumb and twist himself out of all eternity into a human form in Christ to meet us 
where we were twisted. That's what's real. Human desires are like a pebble in the Atlantic Ocean, but they're so close to us. They seem so real. They seem so determinative. Well, of course, having lost the reality of plum, most people have nowhere else to go. But let's you and I, let's accept it. With our twisted lips, let's accept the kiss of God. And let's you and I live in that reality and just be the salt and light that we can. As we come to a quiet time this morning, you might ask yourself, is there a place in my life this morning where I feel out of plumb, where I feel twisted? And if you could notice that in this moment, if you can, if you can't, don't worry about it, but if you can, then just be still for a moment. And let the master potter work on you. Sort of switching metaphors here. Letting the master potter work on you. Just a lump of clay, your life, a lump of clay, put it in his hands and let him shape you according to his knowledge and his good pleasure and even shape you according to what is good for you.